Hello everyone and welcome to Coach's Corner. I don't know about you, but my mind loves to wander. In fact, it's one of the biggest productivity obstacles that I have. I'll be reading a book and I'll read like two pages and I'll be like, what the heck did I just read? (laughs) Or I'll be watching something and have to rewind it because my mind just will wander off. That's why I'm so glad to have Dr. Mishi Jha join me today to talk about what attention really is. How do we really focus our mind and stop a wandering mind? And how do we leverage our minds to not only bring us success, but peace? Dr. Mishi Jha is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She also has her PhD and did her postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke. She is a smart cookie and knows so much about the mind and is going to help you understand yours even more. Dr. Jaw's work has been featured all over the world, and she is the author of, as I said before, the new book, Peak Mind, which you can grab your copy of now. Before we dive in, I want to talk about one of my favorite companies, and I happen to be traveling right now. We're in Sedona. We were just speaking at my friend Aubrey Marcus's Fit for Service event. We did a really beautiful three-hour workshop on inner child and masculine feminine dynamics, and then we're seeing some friends in Scottsdale and then heading to Tucson, so we're just kind of all over Arizona. And when you're traveling, it's hard to get the supplements and food and nutrition that you're used to at home. That's why I always pack my Organifi products. On every trip I take, I make sure I have my Organifi immunity, my Organifi green, and my Organifi red juice. I can just put them in water and I drink the immunity on the plane, especially to keep my immune system up. The greens I have in the morning, the reds I have in the afternoon to help me get all my superfoods in and my antioxidants and all the stuff. I don't even know all the things that are in there. I just know it's really good for me. And I notice the difference and their green drink just mixed with water tastes delicious. You know how some green powders have that just, I can't describe it. It's just a yucky taste and you have to drown it out with other things, not their green juice. And it's not sweetened with anything artificial or anything crummy. You can really trust their ingredients. So as my podcast listener, you get 20% off all Organifi products, not just your first order, any order. Go to Organifi.com slash over it, use promo code over it and get 20% off your orders. And hey, you don't have to use these things just when you're traveling. The red juice and green juice don't just come in individual packets. They come in the tubs as well. So you just scoop it in your water, your smoothie, or however you like to consume your goodness. Again, go to Organifi.com slash over it. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Amishi Jha. Dr. Amishi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about many things and know that my audience is just going to love you and will want to even pick your brain more after we finish this episode. But I want to start off with mindfulness because this is a word that we hear a lot. And especially with, you know, COVID and rising anxiety, it's like practice mindfulness and everybody's like, okay, mindfulness. What is mindfulness? How would you even define it? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. It is in the air a lot these days. So from my point of view, and I'm a a neuroscientist, so mindfulness is even relatively new in my lab, probably the last, gosh, not that new, but 15 years. And to me, the word is actually describing a mental mode, a way of making the mind that has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience without elaborating or reacting to that experience. So oftentimes I'll describe it as, as essentially being in the here and the now without a story about it, mm. just getting the raw data from what's, what's occurring. I love that simple definition because I think sometimes pe- people think mindfulness means I need to be in this deep meditative state, connecting to the ethers, totally not influenced by anything. But what I hear you saying is really just about being present and not letting ourselves be hijacked by the past or the future. Absolutely. And that's the thing about it. It's just the most plain, direct experience with reality that we can possibly have. And even that, it sounds simple enough, but even that's hard to do because we start uncovering all the stories we lay on top of any experience we have. 
And the trick is, in some sense, practicing directly experiencing things without all the stories, or at least being aware of all the stories that we're adding on top as additions, mm-hmm. not actually the raw experience itself. So we notice we're adding the story. What do we do? Well, the first thing is it, there's a huge power in that awareness because part of the capability of our brain to notice that there is something being laid upon kind of the bare experience is that we had to take some distance away from the experience. So we've got to, you know, for example, if something is making somebody really, you know, just take me, for example, if something's really upsetting me and I'm so fully in that upsetting experience, I can't be aware that there's whatever event occurred and then my interpretation on top of it. Mm -hmm. If I can actually take a little bit of a distanced view, and I always think about this as sort of the, the bird's eye view I can see, oh, look, there's the experience that surely did occur, and there's a lot of this other stuff on top of it. And even that puts me not so much at the center of the experience and better positions me to do something differently about it. So I don't just wallow in what might be overcoming me, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if if someone, you know, can be aware of their story, but they also notice that it's the story and the thoughts is overcoming them, but also the physiological anxiety that often comes with that. What do we do with what's happening in the body? Because I notice sometimes it's a body that kind of hijacks us out of the present moment, and it's hard to really calm our nervous system down when these stories come in. You know, these things are so intertwined. You know, again, as a from the kind of brain biology perspective the thing that can initiate a lot of the whole cascade of hormones that occurs when we feel stressed or anxious or sad, whatever it is, is initiated not even by the emotion, but by the thought. Mm. And so in some sense, what we're practicing with mindfulness is getting more and more granular to see the kind of pauses between the potential, I wouldn't even say pauses, choice points. So it's like, you know, let's just say, take something really simple, like you get cut off in traffic right? And like, before you know it, you might be honking at the person or trying to overtake them or whatever, you know, reactive thing we might do. And instead, if we say, okay, that occurred, you know, this person just went ahead of me and didn't allow me to, to merge in or whatever. And then notice, oh, and then the thought occurred, that person's a jerk or whatever, whatever thought may have occurred. And then the emotion of rage or anger, it's like, you see that those are all kind of interlinked mental content. And at each point, we can actually make a different choice, which if we don't think of it that way, ballistically, we'll go from this happened to me and I'm going to honk my horn. Mm. So it is getting like kind of more granular with the experience and then seeing if we could kind of come up with more options at each of those stages. It's like, it could be this, it could be that, you know, the, the multiplicity, like even that person cutting you off, it's like, oh my gosh, this person really needs to get somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah, but the, whatever is driving them to do this, they really need to go. So, you know, it's just a very different orientation than the assumptions that we can lay on and then the reactions we have. So really, I would say when it gets back to what you were saying regarding the body and physiology, to know that the body is not just creating this out of nothing. It's creating this because thoughts led to emotions and that cascade resulted in a physiologic response. Mm. So we could potentially curb all of that by changing the way we orient to the experience directly. It reminds me of that pretty famous quote that I'm going to paraphrase a bit from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, that in between stimulus and response, there's that choice. And in that choice lies our freedom. And that's been an important part of mindfulness for me is that that awareness and, and realizing that I do have choice. Even when it feels like I don't, I do. Because I think a lot of times these things are so programmed in our brain. And maybe you can kind of explain this from a, from a brain point of view, because I think a lot of people go, I know I shouldn't react when someone cuts me off, or I shouldn't snap at my kid when they make a mistake or whatever it may be, or I shouldn't feel anxiety every time I walk into a social situation. And they ha- they know that, but it's like they can't seem to unhook it. So what's actually going on in the brain that keeps us responding in these habitual ways to certain triggers? I mean, in some sense, you already answered it, right? We have the the very strong idea of, um, of what is known. And then this experience of conflict between what we think the desired ideal state is and our actual state. 
and it's getting ourselves there. So, you know, the very innocuous version of that is that you're on your phone. You're not yelling at anybody. You're just quietly on your phone and you're scrolling through social media and you just can't get yourself off. And you get that kind of, oh, why am I still on here? Like I just put down the phone and go do something else. There's another very kind of probably every day. Some of us have experienced that at some point. I can certainly say that for myself. And so there we are again between the should and then the actual. Mm. And so part of the whole journey of mindfulness, and again, my, my expertise is in, is on the, the brain system of attention. So I come at it and there's many different ways you could come at mindfulness, but I come at it from this sort of attentional perspective. Part of what we need is we need the capacity to be able to train our mind to have that strong capability of guiding ourselves to respond differently. Mm. And it may not sound like it's tied to attention, but it actually is. So, you know, if you just think of sort of basic mindfulness practices, and we can even kind of unpack one, yeah. that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're getting very clear on what the kind of goal is or what the target for our attention should be. And then we check out what our own actions are. And then we try to align the two. We're actually practicing getting our goals and our behavior to align better. Mm, I love that. Right. And, and once we can do that, then I think we can use it in whatever it is that we're thinking we're, we're not quite m- m- making the mark. Well, let's, I, I definitely want to go through some mindfulness practices and exercises, but I want to go back to attention because that's yeah. another word that we say even to kids, pay attention. <laughs> what, is, right. what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, we do use it a lot and we do know what we mean when we say it, right? We essentially mean focus. Mm-hmm. But it ends up, again, from the brain science point of view, that this topic of attention is quite broad and there's multiple systems of attention. And kind of the broadest way to say it is it's a system that is a success story of our evolution. We developed attention because our brain, as we became, as creatures became more and more complex, had a big problem, which is all that's in the environment, you know, and even within our ourselves, we can't possibly process it all. So attention is a strategy or essentially a brain process that allows you to take a subset of information and privilege it. So it's like, this is most important right now. And when you take sample, you know, sample information kind of bit by bit, you can start piecing together more, more of what's going on around you and within you. So how do we actually privilege some information over other information? Well, when we go back to using just the regular word attention, we know what that means. It means focus on this, but not that, right? Like focus on your homework, not the, the um, I don't know, video game. So we can certainly select and privilege information based on the content of what it is. And if you think about our visual environment, we do that all the time. Whatever, whoever we're talking to, usually we're focusing on them and not the other people around us. But we can also prioritize and privilege information and select information based on when in time it's occurring. So whatever is happening right now versus something in the past that we can kind of drop from our memory or even forecast into the future. And then the third way we can actually prioritize information is based on our goals. Like, what is it that I think is the most important thing? What's the goal state right now? So all of these become sort of filters in the way that our attention works to prioritize some information over others. And, and I, we can talk a little bit about sort of the brain systems of how that works out yeah, because yeah. those are what we want to train up. I think it helps when we have like an idea of how the brain works. It's, it's like you, when you know how to cook something, you appreciate it more because you know everything that went into it. Yeah. So I let's, right. let's geek out on the brain a little bit. I would love that. Oh yeah, sure. So just going back to these different ways of like selecting information, the, one of the main brain systems of attention, that is probably what we talk about when we say, you know, pay attention, is something called the orienting system. And it, just like all of the systems of attention, involves parts of the frontal lobe, parts of the parietal lobe. I mean, essentially, it's a network throughout the brain that is more active relative to other brain networks. And what it allows us to do is select the the type of information that is most important. So I think of it like the metaphor I like to use is, it's like a flashlight. So if you're in a darkened room, or a path, on, you know, outside you're taking a walk, wherever it is that you direct that flashlight, it's going to be more prominent in your conscious experience. It's going to be crisp and clear and you'll get more information and you can move that flashlight around willfully. The really cool thing is we can extend that kind of metaphor to even directing the flashlight internally so that we are able to 
select certain kinds of mental content. Like if I say right now, uh, or even sensory contact, if I say, you know, feel your, this, pay attention to the sensations of your feet touching the ground. Mm-hmm. It's like, you can do that, right? You can do that seamlessly. It probably was not on your mind before I said it, but we can direct that flashlight internally to bodily sensations. Or if I said, think back to what you had for breakfast yesterday morning, it's like your memory system interacts with attention because you can select that information. It might take you a minute, uh, but then you can do that. So that is the very interesting part about this orienting system is that we can willfully guide where we put our focus. But the other side is, our focus also gets yanked by things. Mm. So if you're on that sort of darkened path walking around and you, you're, you're using the flashlight to guide you to make sure you don't you know, trip or lose your balance, if you hear something wrestling behind you, you're going to immediately turn around and point the flashlight there. That's a very, very powerful thing that our attention system can do to detect threat or alarm or something even of interest. So attention in this flashlight metaphor can be directed and pulled uh, in specific, uh, by specific kinds of content. So that's, that's one way of thinking about it. And then if we want to move on to the next system, it's almost the exact opposite. You know, the, the qualities of a flashlight are that it's, it's narrow. You can even think of it as a laser pointer. We can get it very, very narrow. The next system of attention is what would I call the floodlight. So it's the broadest, most receptive way of making your mind. And unlike the flashlight, which you know, there's a high degree of difference in the quality of the information that is within the flashlight's beam and not. Floodlight, anything that's in it, you basically are detecting. There's nothing you're privileging. And I always like to, I always like to think about another way to think of this brain system called the alerting system. It's like if you're driving down the road and you see a flashing traffic light, Mm -hmm. usually that means something weird's going on here. Just pay attention. Maybe a weird traffic pattern, or maybe there's kids playing nearby or a school's going to let out soon. Something else, something unusual is going to happen. So keep your attention in a ready state so that no matter what, you're ready to, to take action as needed. Very, very different. There's a lot of uncertainty there, but you're kind of broad and receptive to whatever might occur. Mm. So I think both of these kind of work hand in hand, and we can talk about how mindfulness practice actually trains both of them. But they, there's a third system that, you know, as we talked about, the, the flashlight really is about the type of information we select. The floodlight, in some sense, is what's happening right now. The third system is really around our goals and our behavior, and that's called uh, the central executive, or I, I refer to it as the juggler. And, you know, we use that term central executive because it's like an executive of a company. The executive's job is not to do every single thing that is required of the organization to function, but to ensure that everything that's occurring is in line with the goals of what should be happening and to kind of course correct if there are mistakes or, or errors or, or um, wrong directions. And, and in some sense, it is like a juggler in that we're keeping all the balls in the air, making sure everything's functioning properly. So this kind of metaphor tells us that the brain can also guide attention at this very high level based on moment to moment goals that we want to implement. Mm. Mm, I love that. Would now be a good time to talk about what mindfulness practices actually look like? And I think a lot of people have questions around, well, how long does it have to be? Is there a certain breath I need to do or a certain music I need to listen to? And especially you as a neuroscientist can really tell us, well, this, these are practices that actually work and actually impact the brain. So yes, please tell us some practices we can do. Yeah. And I would say the first thing is, you know, at least for mindfulness practice in the way that we study it in my lab and the way that we've found evidence to support its benefits, no special tools or equipment are really required. You don't Mm. need any kind of special gadgets. Really, all you need is your breath, your body, and your attention system to to do these things. And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to write this book, uh, Peak Mind, is we had been doing these studies for many, many years with very high-stress, high-demand groups, like soldiers and first responders, medical and nursing professionals, business leaders. And we were triangulating on sort of this minimum effective dose that we found to be beneficial and found that it wasn't years and years and years that people had to practice for there to be benefits. It could be as little as 12 minutes a day. And the on-ramp is about four weeks. And after that short amount of time, people started really benefiting. And these are people that are not just in kind of typical ups and downs of life, but they're in some of the highest demand periods of their professional lives. So soldiers at pre-deployment training, you know, before they're about to be deployed to a war zone or 
athletes during preseason training, medical students during sort of final and final exams and, and um, rotations. So it really gave me a lot of confidence that if we can help people where it's not just a normal level of stress, but it's actually high stress, let's see how, let's offer them to more mm. people because frankly, all of us are high stress populations, right? We always yeah. feel time pressured and we always want to perform perform at our best. Now, for most of us, I would say, or many of us at least, when our attention lapses, they're not grave life or death consequences, but it can often feel like it, right? If you feel like you might oh, sure. mess up on a report, it's like you don't feel like it's nothing, it's consequential. So the that's all I wanted to say sort of at the outset is that everything that I'm um, talking about is tied to the kind of work that we've done in the lab to say that, yes, these are science-backed approaches and it's doable. For most of us, we could probably figure out a way to get 12 minutes a day in. And so what do you do? So going back to those three main systems of attention, basically the really neat part about mindfulness practice, and again, I didn't know this until I really applied the lens of, of the neuroscience of attention onto looking at mindfulness practice in detail. It's actually circuit training for the brain, and in particular, these three brain systems. So let's maybe I just start with one example of one of the practices that that we do a mindfulness of breathing practice. I mm. actually call it find your flashlight. And and that it really connects back to what we were just talking a moment ago of the flashlight of our of our attention is this powerful system that we all have access to. And here in this practice, what you do, and should I just guide like yeah. a, just a more overview of what you do? So, you know, let's assume you're somewhere where you can actually close your eyes for a few minutes or at least lower your gaze. And part of the reason we do that again, is to minimize the kind of external distractions that might pull us away. So we're trying to minimize those, so whatever's comfortable. And then for a few dedicated minutes, and again, if you've never done this before, I'd say start slow and ramp up um, slowly. But you know, it could be, let's say, even two minutes that you might do a practice like this. So you're going to sit in a comfortable, upright, kind of awake, you know, upright, like I said, but not really uptight. You want an easeful quality to the way you're sitting. And for this few minutes of practice, the task, the goal is to pay attention to your breath related sensations and be very, very specific. Like, you know, just check in with the breath. Let's just breathe for, you know, just a couple inhales and exhales, just normal pace, nothing actually fancy to do through the nose. You can choose to do it whatever way you want. Most of us, yeah, we'll keep our mouths. We can keep our mouths sort of lightly, gently closed and just inhale and exhale at your normal, regular pace. So just feeling an inhale and exhale, just letting your body settle into that normal breathing and really noticing yourself sitting and breathing. And then what I want you to do is, is really remember back to that flashlight and, and check in with your breath-related sensations. What feels really prominent for you, tied to your breath? And be specific. You know, and it'll, it might take a few breaths to figure this out. Is it like the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils, maybe your abdomen moving up and down? Whatever it is for you where every time you take a breath, you really notice this part of the sensory experience. Just take your attentional flashlight and shine it right on those breath-related sensations. That's going to be your attention target for this practice. So you're just guiding your flashlight of attention to that breath-related sensation, and you're holding it there, steady and stable. And if it hasn't happened already, it surely will. Your mind will wander away. It's going to go to some other thought, feeling, sensation, maybe a ding of your phone, whatever it is. It's not going to be on that breath-related sensation. The flashlight's somewhere else. And when you notice that that's occurred, just gently in this sort of self-supportive manner, redirect the flashlight back to the breath-related sensations. Staying on the breath and keeping stable. Noticing where, where your attention is, where your flashlight is directed. Redirecting it back as needed. And repeat. And we can close, close out this practice. Just feel when you're 
when you feel ready, just go ahead and, you know, sort of go back to opening your eyes and returning back to your surroundings. So that was super, super short. <laughs> but it made a difference. Like I noticed it, you know? Yeah. 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 And you know, we could do this for much longer with a lot more sort of quiet moments for yourself. It's just, I'm sensitive to not having just a lot of <laughs> dead air, so to speak. <laughs> The reason that I think this is such a, a useful thing to try, especially as we just had our discussion regarding these systems of attention, is because we just, even in those short few moments that we did the practice, we exercised all three systems. We had a dedicated target where we pointed the flashlight. We had to keep our, our floodlight broad and receptive to kind of check out where the flashlight was pointing moment mm. to moment. And then the juggler, the executive control, had to get us back on track to doing what we, we have asked ourselves to do. Mm. And so, you know, when you do this over and over again, you're not doing it to become an excellent breath follower. You're, you're really doing it to, to take those skills and those strengthened skills into the rest of your life. Mm. And I love that you said, and if it hasn't happened yet, it surely will, that your mind will wander right at the moment where my mind was wandering up to my screen. Like, are we still recording as a good... <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that I think gets people. Most people that 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 hear the term mindfulness, it can make them a little nervous. Like, yeah. man, my mind is just too busy. I'm all over the place, or I have a lot of inner dialogue and chatter. And the you know, the main thing I want to say is like, yes, you're human. The, the statistic mm-hmm. is very clear. About fifty percent of our waking moments, our attention is not on the task at hand. Mm. So it's a very, very common experience. It's built into our biology. We were sort of devised to have distractible minds. And every time we notice that our mind has wandered away from where we want it to be, that's a win. That's the way we kind of cultivate better focus. It's not by just pointing the flashlight and leaving there. It's by checking in with micro excursions away from what we want to focus on. You know, then we kind of nip it in the bud more, more quickly and more easily. So we don't have to be off like planning our next vacation when we're trying to focus on our breath. We just kind of notice like, oh man, okay, no, get back. You know, that kind of more supportive get back on track. And if we can be kind and, and firm with ourselves in this, in the privacy of our own minds, doing this practice, you know, we can carry that out into the rest of our lives into any task we want to accomplish. Absolutely. I love that. And it's simple. It's simple. It's free. It's an easy thing to do. And you don't need special crystals or music to, to, to do it. But I have found just focusing on my breath is one of the best ways to practice mindfulness, to calm my nervous system, to increase the oxygen levels in my body. I find myself to be mostly a chest breather. And I've learned that most women are chest breathers and we're often like not getting enough CO2 and and oxygen in our body. And so that mindfulness practice, it has, at least for me, it has huge biological benefits as well in terms of not only calming my mind, but really, well, I guess the two go hand in hand, calming my nervous system, especially that vagus nerve that can get fired up sometimes. So I'm so glad that you took us through that process. Thank you. I want to talk about, and I could probably answer this question by just thinking about when I try to talk to my husband and he's looking at his phone, but I'd love for a neuroscientist to answer it. What does technology really do to our attention and why should we um, break up with our phones? Oh, first of all, don't break up with your phone. (laughs) It's not going to work and don't even try is what I'd say. You know, the first thing I'll say is like, there's nothing wrong with our attention. Our attention system is strong as ever. And our attention spans are not shrinking. You know, that's the, that's the sort of current lore. Attention, the evolution doesn't work at that time scale. You know, our attention is just as it has been for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. The thing that's different now is that our flashlight's getting pulled a lot more. Uh. So and it's getting pulled so reliably and so effectively that computer algorithms can predict what'll pull the flashlight toward it. Yeah. This is what gets us into these conversations regarding attention as a commodity, as a currency, and attention markets and you know, a lot of a lot of sort of social media and technology is mining our attention because it is so reliably directed toward it. And you know, what kinds of things does the flashlight get pulled by? Well, salient, novel, fear-inducing, self-related information. Mm. And mm. if you now think about your newsfeed, it's all of that. It's yeah. all of that. And Especially it's not, lately. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think just not understanding that, no, there's nothing particularly wrong with any of our brains. We're doing exactly 
as our brains are designed to do. It's just that we have a bigger challenge now, a bigger, very alluring stimulus that we carry around with us willfully. The problem with deciding to break up with your phone is that, well, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever, technology is here to stay. You can't probably do this even if you choose to. For some work-related demand or personal demand, you're going to need your phone. And in some sense, you think of it like food. If you have a challenger, you know, you want to, let's say, drop some pounds, you can't just say, I'm going to break up with food. You've got to come to some harmonious relationship with a challenging aspect, you know, stimulus in your life. And same goes with our technology and our attention. So I would say we want to apply the same sort of principles and even practices that we just talked about with our breath. The biggest thing we can do to help ourselves, if especially if we feel like we're being overrun by technology, is to use all three brain systems. So don't take it lightly. You know, don't mm. think that there's something wrong, but really notice, just like we were saying a little while ago regarding, you know, getting somebody cutting you off in traffic or having an overreaction to something. Like notice the next time, you know, let yourself behave kind of naturally with your with your phone, but notice, oh my goodness, look at that. I'm already on my phone, on the app and scrolling and I didn't even think about it. It was sort of a ballistic automatic thing that I did. So you're bringing attention to these automatic behaviors. And then probably you want to pay attention to what the intention is. Okay, I'm here. What do I want to get out of this engagement? So if you set that up, the goal up, then you might be more willing or able to catch yourself when you kind of go past that. It's like, oh, I just want to check out, you know, I don't know, somebody's post or I would like to see, you know, I want to buy a new pan. I talk about that actually in my book is <laughs> I just wanted to buy a new pan mm -hmm. for a new kind of induction oven I got. And it's just like I was assaulted by so many advertisements <laughs> because I was so aware of this happening. It's like I was less prone to being sucked in. But if I didn't, wasn't paying attention, I probably would have bought a lot more stuff that I don't need. So our attention is going to be our ally and we can train to be better able to interface with these challenges and you know, and we're up against a lot. We're, it's not one or two algorithms. It's armies and teams of engineers designing ways to actually draw us in. So it's not a fair fight that we're up against. Mm -hmm. Well, and this kind of brings me to multitasking because, mm -hmm. you know, well, one, and I don't know if this is true or not. I, I was listening to a book and um, I can't even remember which one, but it said that women's brains are actually more wired for multitasking than men. So I want to know if you had any research on that. And two, what you think of multitasking. Can we really do it? Is it effective? Or should we really just try to have that flashlight awareness and focus on one thing at a time? First of all, let's just start with the term multitasking. It's actually a misnomer. It doesn't exist. We don't multitask. Mm. What I mean multitask here is when two things are two or more things are intentionally demanding, we are not engaging in them simultaneously. Notice this whole time, I didn't say flashlights of attention, mm. I said flashlight. Our focus is singular because what attention does is it recalibrates the entirety of the brain. Like what I mean by that is like, think about uh, your brain is sort of like a studio apartment. And when you focus on something, like let's say for my studio apartment, my task is I want to cook an amazing meal. So I kind of rearrange my whole studio apartment to have like places where I can set up the vegetables, this or that or whatever I'm doing, I'm using it as sort of an extended kitchen. And now all of a sudden it's time for me to throw the party. I'm going to, you know, I made all this food for. So I had to rearrange the whole room again and it's party time. So what we did is we have two tasks, right? We've got make the food and then have the party. And the brain is like the room. So anytime you have a task and you pay attention in a particular way, the brain can reconfigures itself to prioritize that task. So if you're wanting to read an email, your brain is configured to do that. Now all of a sudden a text message pops up. You've got to basically leave the kitchen and now rearrange the whole room to make it deal with, you know, the other task, the party, for example. And then you got to come back and rearrange it again to engage in, in the cooking mm. for the kitchen. So it's this reconfiguration that we have to do over and over again every time we switch tasks because that's exactly what we're doing. We are task switching not multitasking. And that switching that we do is very intentionally costly. It's it, in fact it's intentionally exhausting. We deplete this very precious and limited brain resource by forcing ourselves over and over again to kind of reconfigure the way the brain is operating. Mm. So I would say 100% don't force yourself to do that if you can monotask, monotask. 
And in terms of your question earlier regarding, you know, are women more capable of doing this? Probably just like everything else in the brain, the more we practice doing something, Mm -hmm. the better we can be at it. And as I would say, kind of evolutionarily, if we're the ones that have been, you know, managing things and and especially the child rearing aspects, we've had to do that a lot. Mm -hmm. So better able to kind of flip back and forth with less disruption to any either of the tasks. So it may feel like multitasking, but we're still task switching. Okay. That's a huge distinction. I'm so glad you brought that up because so if let's say that you're on the phone with someone and scrolling through your Instagram at the same time, you're making your brain work extra hard because you have to switch back, listen to them, look at the phone, listen to them, look at the phone kind of thing. So you're actually going to be more exhausted after that say work call or whatever call it's in because your brain had to work harder. Would that be true? Yes. Or you're just not going to pay as much attention to either of them. Right. Yeah. You're, you're just going to never fully, you know, it's like you're going to have a, 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 you're going to have a dinner party with like dirty dishes everywhere. That's yeah. sort of the way to think about it. You're not fully reconfiguring the whole system. So you're not really paying attention to the Instagram feed and you're really not paying attention to the conversation. And people feel that, right? I mean, we know on the receiving end of that. Yeah. It's like, Oh gosh, come on, just pay attention to me, please. I know. <laughs> please listen. <laughs> so it is this very attention is just like it's so wrapped in our sense of connection and care, too. Yeah. You know, in the personal sense, but also in the professional sense. People can really tell when you're half there. Yeah. Well, and I notice, I mean, I when I turn everything off and just focus, I can get so much done versus when I have my phone next to me or my email is still on or I'm working, but also, you know, doing stuff around the house. It's like, it takes me so much longer because I'm pulling myself in and out of different tasks. So yeah, you're right. It's like flashlight here, flashlight there, flashlight here. It it gets exhausting and draining. And so that, that monotasking is important. I think what you said is such an important po- point that we just have more things that's pulling our flashlight away from what we directly want to or need to shine it on. I mean, I'm I've been working on my fourth book for years. I don't even know how long. And I remember my first book that I wrote in 2005, first of all, there were less distractions in my life and in the world. You know, if we think about where technology was in 2005, it's very different than 2021. And it was so much easier for me to focus because I had less distractions. I had less things pulling my awareness off. So I'm very curious. We're going to talk about your book, Peak Mind. Um, in a moment, but I'd love to begin by starting with your process of writing it as someone that focuses on and studies attention and mindfulness. What was your process for getting this book done and writing it? Yeah. I mean, I had to, I would say (laughs) everything got reinforced and everything got challenged (laughs) Um, because I, all the principles that I was trying to convey, I had to make sure that I was implementing. And I knew if I did, I had a better chance of success. So for sure, trying my best to devote, you know, kind of time for the deep thinking, uh, time for the actual uh, inner dialogue to unfold. And, you know, and this is important. Oftentimes when we're, especially when we're in a creative space, time for spontaneous thought. So oftentimes in the generative state, we don't want to be overly focused. We want the flashlight to just kind of bop around wherever it will and kind of see what the landscape's like. Just check it out. We don't really do that for ourselves. We will be kind of, we will either overly commit to having a goal and having to accomplish it. And usually when we do that, it means we haven't allowed the flashlight to check out the mental space. So it was a beautiful and frustrating and challenging dance that was about kind of setting goals, but also loosening up and then directing the flashlight, but sometimes letting it, let it, letting it go wherever it would. But these basic principles of monotasking when I could, and then actually practicing every single day, it really did help to keep me from exhausting myself to the point where, you know, it was no more, it wasn't fun anymore. Because that often is the result. We don't just feel intentionally depleted. We feel psychologically exhausted. And everything you were describing earlier regarding our nervous system along for the ride, I mean, the whole reason I got interested in mindfulness is because I had a personal crisis of attention, which was giving me very strong feedback that I'm stressed because I stopped being able to feel my front teeth from grinding. Mm. (laughs) And it was like a really huge wake-up call. Like, what? How do I not know this? Well, you're not paying attention. 
So just, I would say it's a, it's not an easy answer of like, here's my prescription, but all of these things can inform how to treat ourselves with more care and in a more self-supported manner. Mm. Well, let's talk about the book, Peak Mind. And I love the subtitle, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. So what made you write this book and what can we learn from it? Well, like I said, you know, we have been studying high stress, high demand groups for almost 15 years now. And what I learned, which was almost, I would say, very discouraging and almost shocking was that when we experience high demand periods of our lives, like let's say an undergrad or any kind of student going through the academic semester, just the challenge of the high stress interval will deplete our attention. And then often we got to perform by the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. So for an undergrad, it's like, then you got to take final exams. Well, we were finding that same pattern of high stress intervals depleting attention for groups like pre-deployment soldiers, uh, for elite athletes that were about to have their whole careers determined by, you know, their placement during a performance camp. So it's it's consequential. And and then it was like, okay, well, if you find that your attention gets depleted over high stress, can I protect it? Can I protect it even under high stress intervals? That was kind of my quest was like, let's see what we can do to kind of provide some kind of mental armor for people. Would mindfulness be something that could be useful? And we found soon enough that, yes, doing these practices with regularity, learning how to do them with a trainer and then doing them with regularity can really help. It helps mood. It helps attention. It helps performance. But most of us can't devote um, sort of what the state of the, the, the research was at that point, two and a half hours a week and 45 of class time and then 45 minutes a day of daily practice with mindfulness. Like most people, especially time pressured people, can't do that. So we we really worked um, systematically to figure out what's the lowest minimum effective dose that still produces beneficial effects. And then I wanted to offer it to as many people as I could, which is what motivated me to write the book. It was like, okay, we have a prescription. It's about 12 minutes a day, four days, you know, four to five days a week, over four weeks to get you started. And your attention, your performance, your mood, your sense of connection tend to improve. Um, and I wanted to convey that. So the book and the reason it's called Peak Mind is really because what we soon realized is that when people have access to their full attentional capacity, they really are performing at their peak, no matter how stressful the circumstances. Yeah. I think that's such an important point of most people that need mindfulness don't have, say, two hours a day or an hour a day or even sometimes 30 minutes a day. And that's what makes them stop doing it. That's what makes them not do it. And what I hear you saying is that you don't need two hours a day. You don't even necessarily need 20 minutes. You can just do a little bit every day and build up to it. And what I notice when I'm in a more dedicated mindfulness practice is I'll start with, you know, five minutes a day. And then all of a sudden I'm up to 20 minutes a day and it goes by really fast because my body and my nervous system and my mind really starts to like it. (laughs) It really starts to appreciate it. So have you noticed that the more we train with mindfulness, the easier it is to to dip into and experience the benefits of it? Mom, I would say, you know, I wouldn't want to say that that's always the case. Mm. (laughs) I mean, you might not say you're benefiting, but I guarantee the people around you will be like, you know what? You don't yell as much when you're upset or you seem like when you have a challenge, you overcome it more quickly. It's almost like it can initially be sort of a surprise to us. But the reason I want to say that it's not immediately apparent to us is actually a sign of its success. Oftentimes when we start teaching people about mindfulness, they'll start noticing how much their mind actually is wandering, right? It's Mm. like, oh my gosh, I thought my mind was not that you know, that distracted, but I'm noticing I'm constantly moving away from what I'm trying to do. And that may feel like kind of a disappointment, but it's not because what it's actually suggesting to you is that you have more information now. All those moments before when you were wandering away and didn't know, you couldn't get yourself back on track. Now you can. Right. So it's slowly realizing, and I think there's a little bit of an arc to this, that initially it may even feel a little more painful but you start realizing, oh, these are opportunities. It's not just hopeless that as I know the nature of my mind, I know my vulnerabilities, I know my distractible uh, tendencies, I can actually intervene. And that's when it starts feeling like you feel better because you're actually taking action 
to benefit all these aspects of your life, whether it's personal or professional. Mm, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you too, kind of as we start to wrap up here, because you mentioned stress and I want to go back to stress for a moment. Because I mean, it's, I don't have to be a neuroscientist to know what stress does to my attention. <laughs> it's not good for my attention whatsoever. So when people notice they're in stress and they just try to push themselves to focus, is that the right choice to be making in that moment? And how does stress really impact our ability to focus and, and, and do something well? Right. Well, I would say it's not just the wrong thing to do, but it won't work. Mm. If you're in a very stressful situation and you basically are like, okay, just forget about it and get back to what Push you're through. To, yeah. Um, the forget about it is mentally energetically demanding. You're not, there's no such thing as pressing a delete button in your brain. Like you're actively suppressing it, which means it's going to bounce back. And it took energy to actively suppress it. But let's go back to why the stress happens in the first place and where our mind is during those stressful moments and, and why mindfulness in particular can be very helpful. So this, this very powerful aspect of our, of our brain, um, can also get us into trouble under high stress circumstances. So this is something that we can just describe as mental time travel. So under sort of normal circumstances, um, if we think back to our attention as a, this flashlight, we can so easily rewind the mind mentally, right? To, to past events and we learn from them or we fast forward to plan and project ourselves into the future of what we might want to do. And we seamlessly kind of go back and forth, but when it's stress, stressful circumstances, meaning, and I want to be very clear about what I mean by stressful here, this is perceived stress, is that the demand and the requirement of you outpaces your capacity to meet the challenge. It's that mismatch between what you can do and what you need to do. Under those kinds of circumstances, you're not just rewinding the mind and reflecting on the past. Now you're, now you're reliving, ruminating, and you're stuck mm. sort of in these mental loops that aren't taking you anywhere. You're not productively learning from the past. You're just looping on probably painful memories. And same thing goes for the future. You're not productively planning. You're catastrophizing and worrying. And it's those that looping aspect where attention's got nowhere to go. It's just kind of stuck in this whirlpool. So in those moments, the best solution is to actually not rewind or fast forward, but keep the button right on play. Just show up in the here and the now. And that's a very different orientation than pushing away the stress-inducing content because we can practice to show up in the now. That's what mindfulness practice is. You can't save your breath for later. It's the sensations of breathing right now that you're focusing on. So it's like, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. Get here right now. Mm -hmm. Just let the other things go. Don't suppress them. Don't think about them in a different way. Don't reframe the situation. Just show up right now. And, and this is where sort of, you know, you might call it like in the moment practice. Um, there's one we call the stop practice. Stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. Mm. And that stopping is really just like saying, take that flashlight and just show up right here. Just grab it, show up right here. And in some sense, now all of a sudden you're paying attention to what's going on right now, which is where the challenge probably is going to be able to be addressed. And you're not spending out your precious attentional resources looping on the past, you know, getting more and more uh, driven to poor mood or catastrophizing about a, a reality that you've made up and may never occur. Mm. So you're saving your, your brain's energy in two very, very powerful ways. Uh, and you're giving yourself the control to be back in the present moment where solutions can actually be uh, made actionable. And I imagine when we're stressed out and our cortisol is high and maybe we're sleep deprived and have just a lot going on on a physical level, just stopping and breathing and doing a brief mindfulness practice is also just going to help physically be able to show up and focus rather than being in that stress state and then pushing yourself into a task and bringing all that physiological stress with you. Absolutely. Because what the reason the physiologic processes keep getting driven is that each moment you're kind of recirculating the same mental content, which is re resulting in the same thought, let's say, which is driving the same mood, which is resulting in the same cascade of hormones being dumped into your body when the body is being told there's something seriously wrong here. Come on, get the, get the body ready to take action. You know, you're getting into this sort of 
um, action-oriented response when really there's no action to be taken in that point of view. There is no impending threat mm. on you. Mm. Your mind has created that threat because it has um, fast-forwarded to a, a doom state, you know, that it, that again, may never occur. So, so by not allowing that thought to continue to percolate and not having these emotions continue to arise, we actually give the body a chance to kind of re-regulate itself so that the hormones are not continuing to be released, which is the way in which we can get back to some kind of steady state. Yeah. I cannot relate at all to going to worst case scenario thinking that just doesn't sound like anything I ever, ever, ever do. So I don't know. Maybe some people relate to that. Maybe. Oh gosh. Oh, this has been so useful and helpful. I know that people are going to want more. So your book comes out this week. Yes. My book coming out this week. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and um, if they want to learn more about us, you know, cause we're constantly doing new research on this. Um, they can just go to my website, amishi.com, A-M-I-S-H-I.com. Beautiful. And the book is full. I'm, I'm kind of looking through. I looked through it on Amazon before we got on. And what I like about it is that it's full of like practical advice too. Like there's, seems like there's science and theory. I haven't read it yet. Um, but there's also really practical tips that people can use to practice mindfulness. Yes. Absolutely. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to explain the, not just the why, but the how, how to help ourselves. Beautiful. Well, you're so helpful. And honestly, like I don't know if anyone's told you this, but you should lead guided meditations or visualizations. You have such a soothing voice. And I love that you teach mindfulness because your voice and your energy just goes along along with it. So you thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you for the way that you communicate it. And thank you for, you know, blending science with mindfulness, you know, and really showing us the the biological, physical, emotional benefits, like in, in hard data of how mindfulness and how just stopping and being present and breathing and going within really does serve us. Because I think there's more and more people like you who are really using their professional background and experience to make this stuff not granola, not woo-woo, to really make it mainstream and say, hey, this stuff really works and we need to do it. We need to take care of our brains. We can't operate on, you know, 400 cylinders and flashlights everywhere. That's that's not how our brain works. So just want to acknowledge you and thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. And thank you for this really fun conversation. My pleasure. All right, everybody, go out and get the book, Peak Mind. Learn how to really shift your attention, your awareness, mindfulness in a very practical and helpful way. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. 